Welcome to Breaking Through. I'm Madeline Bell, President and CEO of Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. I'm thrilled to be bringing you this special bonus episode of my COVID-19 podcast series, Where We Are Now. This series highlights the top doctors and researchers who are working day and night to help bring an end to the COVID-19 pandemic. They're working on the front lines and behind the scenes to better understand COVID-19 and to make the breakthroughs the world needs right now. My guest today is Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is one of the world's leading experts on vaccine development. He is the director of CHOP's Vaccine Education Center and the co-inventor of the rotavirus vaccine, Rotatech. He has served as a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices at the CDC, and he is a member of the FDA's Vaccine and Related Biologic Products Advisory Committee. Dr. Offit is also a member of the World Health Organization's COVID-19 Vaccine Workgroup. Today, we're going to talk about a topic that's on everyone's mind right now, the COVID-19 vaccine. Dr. Offit, several COVID-19 vaccines are currently available. Could you tell us a little bit about each one and how they're different? Sure. So two of them are very similar. One is made by Pfizer, the other is made by Moderna, and it's a novel strategy. It's one that's never been used to make a vaccine before. It's basically a genetic vaccine, which means that instead of giving what we normally give when we give vaccines, like a, a live, weakened form of the virus or sort of a killed form of the virus or just a, a viral protein, we don't do any of that. We're giving a small gene, so-called messenger RNA, which is a blueprint for instructing cells to actually make one of the viral proteins. So the gene enters your cell and then your cell makes a coronavirus spike protein and then your body makes antibodies to that spike protein. That's the, the Pfizer vaccine, that's the Moderna vaccine. The third vaccine that was just approved for use in the United States was made by Johnson & Johnson. And that's a somewhat different strategy. There you have a virus, it's a so-called adenovirus, a human adenovirus that has been rendered unable to reproduce itself. But what it does is it carries the gene, the same gene that codes for that coronavirus spike protein into the cell. And then ultimately that gene is again kind of transcribed and translated to a messenger RNA molecule, which then instructs your cells to make the spike protein. So in the end, all three vaccines are in some ways very similar because they cause your body to make the viral protein and then your body makes an antibody response to that viral protein. So many people are asking me which vaccine they should get, and they're worried about it. Could you tell us why we shouldn't worry about which of the three different types of vaccine we get? Right. Get whatever you can. The fact of the matter is that we're still in the midst of a pandemic. The fact of the matter is we still don't have enough vaccine to give to everyone who needs it, which is pretty much everyone. It's hard to watch. Uh, you know that over the next few weeks, there are going to be tens of thousands of people who are going to die. Uh, none of them would probably have had to have died had they received the vaccine. So get whatever you can is what I would recommend. So back to the messenger RNA technology that you just described, can you talk about how this might be able to be used in the future for other vaccine development? Yeah, that's a great question. Although it is a novel strategy for vaccines and that we've never used it before, the technology has been around for about 15 years. It was actually developed by Drew Weissman and Catalan Carico at the University of Pennsylvania, for which I really do think it's wholly possible they could win the Nobel Prize. I mean, it's a game-changing technology. In any case, since that time, over the last 15 years or so, people have started to look at this technology to see whether it could work to make 
an AIDS vaccine, in other words, a vaccine against human immunodeficiency virus, or a better tuberculosis vaccine, or a universal influenza vaccine, or a malaria vaccine. So we'll see. It certainly created an activation energy, this mRNA technology, to see whether it will launch us into really the next era of vaccines, the so-called genetic era of vaccines. And so for people who have been vaccinated, what advice do you have for them about how to conduct themselves you know, over the le- next few months? Right. So the virus is still at some level raging. We still have, you know, 60,000 cases a day, as many as 2,000 deaths a day. If you've gotten the vaccine, that means that you have a 95% chance, or said another way, a 19 out of 20 chance that if you're exposed to the virus, you're not going to get sick. But that's not 100%. And so you may be one of that one in 20 who isn't going to be protected when exposed to the virus. So I would say people who have already been vaccinated, if they're going to go out in public and, and be with other people, especially indoors, I would still mask and do your best to social distance. I've had two doses of the vaccine and I still do that because I worry that I might be that one in 20 people. I can tell you I feel a lot better now that I've been vaccinated, but until the numbers go way down in terms of cases and hospitalizations and deaths, I think we still need to be careful. I know you've been getting a lot of questions about the variants and what they might do to change the course of this pandemic. Could you speak a bit about that? Right. It's been confusing, I think, at some level, the way it's been carried in the media. The virus that swept through China, the virus that caused all those hospitalizations and deaths, especially initially in Wuhan, that wasn't the same virus that left China. The virus that left China and then swept across Europe and swept across the United States was the first variant. It didn't have a country name. It was just called the D614G variant. That's the variant to which we've made vaccines. All the vaccines, the Moderna vaccine, the Pfizer vaccine, the Johnson Johnson vaccine, are all made to prevent that variant, the D614G variant. So we know it's going to work against that. That's what it was tested against. So then the question is, will it work against these other variants, these other sort of modifications of the virus? And basically, it's a bat coronavirus that's now adapting itself to growth in people. And as it does that, it's going to create these variants. So there's the South African variant, the Brazilian variant, the UK variant. Will this vaccine work against that, those variants? And I think right now, you can say that they will work well enough to prevent you from being hospitalized or prevent you from going to the intensive care unit or prevent you from dying. I think we can say that. But there may be a variant that comes up that affects people who, although they've already been vaccinated or already been naturally infected, nonetheless are hospitalized by that new variant. If that happens, then a line has been crossed. But that line hasn't been crossed yet. As a children's hospital, we're getting a lot of questions from parents about when their children will be able to get vaccinated and what the process is between now and the time vaccines are approved for children. Can you talk about that? I think children do need to be vaccinated. I think any virus that causes children to occasionally suffer or be hospitalized, and in this case, rarely die, still we need to prevent it, assuming we can prevent it safely. But the trials that were initially done were done for the most part in adults. Pfizer's trial was down to 16 years of age, but all the other vaccine trials have been in those over 18. But we're doing studies now, including at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, down to 12 years of age. I think once those studies are done, and they're not going to be nearly as big as the other studies that have been done. They'll be more like dose-ranging studies where you'll give the children a particular dose or series of doses, make sure that they can develop an adequate immune response, make sure you have the interval for dosing right, and that'll probably involve a few thousand children. And then we would be comfortable vaccinating, say, the 12 to 18-year-old. And with that, I think we would then move down to six years of age. But I suspect we're not going to go much lower than six as a guess. 
Dr. Off at CHOP's Vaccine Education Center has been a really important resource for so many people during this pandemic, and you as the spokesperson have been as well. What are the most frequent questions you're getting asked? The most frequent question I get asked actually is, I'm a grandparent. I've been vaccinated. When can I hug my grandchildren? That is by far and away the most frequent question I get asked. And I think the answer is you can feel at this point comfortable hugging your grandchildren if you've been vaccinated. The other question that I get asked is, because it's a genetic vaccine, I think people worry that it will affect your DNA, you know, that it will somehow alter or perturb your own DNA, which is frankly impossible. So I try and reassure people for why that can't possibly happen. Those are the two main questions I get asked. I'll ask you one more question because we have many women who work here who are childbearing age and are a little worried about the vaccine if they're planning a family or if they're currently pregnant. Can you speak to that? Right. It would have been reasonable for these companies, Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson, to include pregnant women in their trials. The reason is, is that when women are pregnant, if they're infected with this virus, SARS-CoV-2, they are more likely to be severely infected than women who are similar age but not pregnant. So for that reason, it became clear early on that pregnant women would benefit from this vaccine. Therefore, it really would have been nice if the companies had included pregnant women in their studies. They didn't. So typically when that happens, what the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, will do is they'll say the vaccine is contraindicated for use in pregnancy because we don't have the data. And until we have the data, we're not going to recommend the vaccine. They didn't do that this time, interestingly. What they said was that pregnant women could reasonably make a choice to get the vaccine. And so what's happened now is about 30,000 pregnant women have already received this vaccine. About 16,000 pregnant women are currently being followed in the CDC's V-SAFE program. So what that program is, is they call women on a weekly basis who were pregnant that got the vaccine to make sure they're okay. And then they're going to follow, once the baby is born, those babies at two, four, and six months of age to make sure the baby's okay. So I think we will have those data. But right now, according to the CDC, women can reasonably make the choice to get that vaccine. And there's so many people just across the population in general. I've encountered a couple even today who are really hesitant to get the vaccine or vaccines in general. What advice do you have for people who are concerned about getting the vaccine? Well, I think it's reasonable to be skeptical about anything you put into your body, including vaccines. And I think when people were asked the question in September, would you get a COVID-19 vaccine? Actually, more than half said no. I think I would have been one of the people that also said no. My answer would have been, wait, let me see the data first. Well, right now we have the data. We know that in pre-approval studies of 30,000 people or 44,000 people, the vaccine is highly effective and safe. But you don't really know whether or not a vaccine has a rare side effect until it's been in tens of millions of people. Well, it's been in tens of millions of people. So at this point, I think one skepticism should fade. I think if people still are saying, look, I don't want to get this vaccine, it worries me that they've sort of moved from vaccine skepticism to vaccine cynicism, where they simply don't believe what they're being told, which is too bad because the only way out of this pandemic is with vaccination. And one of the things that scares me is that we're not able to get to 80% of the population immune, either immune from natural infection or immune from vaccination, because a critical percentage of the population has chosen not to vaccinate. I really hope that doesn't happen because this is our only way out of this. I know you don't have a crystal ball, and I'm sure you get asked this question often, but since I have you here, can you tell me what your thoughts are about where we'll be a year from now? Okay, I'm I'm willing to make whatever 
prediction you, you asked me to make as long as you don't hold me to it. But here's what I would say. I think that two things right now are working against the virus. We know that the number of cases are down, the number of hospitalizations are down, and the number of deaths are down, and the weather's going to get warmer, and more and more people are going to get vaccinated. So I think you're going to continue to see numbers going down. And then by the summer, according to the Biden administration, there's every reason to believe they're right. We should have enough vaccine to vaccinate everybody. That's going to be the critical time, summer, early fall to make sure that at least 80% of the population is immune, either from infection or from vaccination. If we don't get there, then what's going to happen is next winter, because this virus isn't going to go away, it's still going to be around. Next winter will be the thing that tells all. If we're able to get to 80% population immunity, then I think next winter will just be a bump. If we're not, then I think this virus will surge again next winter. How about the future of the Vaccine Education Center? Where do you see the center going in the future? Right. We certainly seem to be in the right place at the right time now. I think we've never had more visits to our websites or more requests for information. I think that this is an, an important moment, I think, for the Vaccine Education Center because we're barraged with questions. And so we now have sort of a way to answer those questions and provide a, an archive where people can easily get to those questions. And I, I'm sure this isn't going to be the end of it because, one, I think we're going to have a series of new genetic vaccines. And also, it'll be interesting, normally, when you're at sort of February, beginning of March, that the hospital is full of patients who have winter viral respiratory diseases like influenza or respiratory syncytial virus or parainfluenza virus. But the influenza numbers are way down because we've masked in social distance. And it'll be interesting to see as we move forward whether those sort of mitigation strategies would in any way be used in the winter to sort of do what we've done. Typically, 150 to 200 children die every winter of influenza. This year, it's been one, meaning in the United States. So I think the Vaccine Education Center will see this as an opportunity to educate not only about this virus, but how to prevent many other viruses moving forward. I think that's a resource that I think could give us all hope in the future. So I always like to close by asking my guests about their personal breakthroughs. Dr. Afik, could you tell me about your biggest breakthrough moment? Well, I was fortunate enough to work with a team at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, headed by Stanley Plotkin and Fred Clark, I mean, two brilliant researchers, to be part of a roughly 26-year effort to create a rotavirus vaccine, a vaccine that's estimated to save hundreds of lives every day in this world. I'd like to think there was one breakthrough moment, one eureka moment, you know, like where Archimedes runs down the street. That didn't happen. It's more like um, just a series of two steps forward, one step back, two steps forward, one step back. But there was one moment for me, though. It was when the vaccine finally was licensed by the Food and Drug Administration, and then it went to the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices. And, and when I went to that meeting, there was uh, a vote as to whether or not they were going to routinely recommend this vaccine for all children in the United States. And it went around and the vote was unanimously to do that. And that was the moment. That was the moment when I felt like it had all sort of come together. And I had to go to Memphis right after that to give a talk. And I remember walking through the Martin Luther King Museum, which is a very emotional museum. I just remember crying. I think it was because all of that 26-year effort came crystallized into that one moment. Well, that's quite a breakthrough moment. That's all the time we have for today. Dr. Offit, thank you so much for joining me. Can you tell our listeners how they can visit the Vaccine Education Center? Sure. Just go online to vaccine.chop.edu and you'll find us. To learn more about how you can be part of tomorrow's breakthroughs at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, please visit chop.edu giving. At CHOP, we make breakthroughs every day. I'm Madeline Bell. Thank you for listening.